From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I mean, we're not just talking about, well, we write out this curriculum or we have this program and then we get feedback from the students. What I'm arguing in the book, no, actually, we need to listen to those with intersectional identities. We need to listen to those who feel they're not being heard in order to know what to do, right? (laughs) To even begin having the conversation and intersectionality enables us to do that. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's the author of several books, including Unfinished Business, Black Women, The Black Church, and The Struggle to Thrive in America, and Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism, Womanist and Black Feminist Perspectives. She's also taught at Bright Divinity School. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. Professor Carrie Day, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be on your show, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, because listeners may be unfamiliar with some of the larger issues that we're talking about, I want to start the conversation by setting a couple of pieces in place. So the first thing I want to ask you about is when students come to a seminary or a school of divinity or a school of theology, They're coming for an education, and for a lot of listeners, education means information. But when we talk about seminary studies, theological studies, we're not just talking about information, we're also talking about formation. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the general way that theological education thinks about those two spheres, information and formation, the tensions between them and how they're integrated in a theological program. Yeah, I think that theological education historically has tended to think, which I talk about in the book broadly, in two ways. The first one is as uh, formation, but connected to a certain kind of information, right? So it's formation in the sense of historically how middle class white men socially located in fairly, you know, well-to-do context have been formed in order to serve church and nation, right? So as you can imagine, then that formation, which is a very closed idea um, and concept of formation, because it's essentially shaping a person according to a very enclosed community, right? A community of whiteness. And I think historically within theological education that this dissemination of information has been deeply connected historically to this very exclusive type of formation of the the property middle-class white man. And I think right now what where the revolution is in terms of theological education is recognizing then second that you have a diversity of different students coming to theological education and to seminaries with their own set of questions, with their own sense of social location, right, that informs how they think about the world, how they think about God, and how they think about themselves, which means then that the model of formation, how we think about formation itself, has to shift. It has to transform. And in talking about then the need for formation to transform, then we're talking about what it means to think more creatively about information. That is, how are we thinking about what is needed in terms of being taught within seminaries related to theological education? So I just, I I wanted to say that as a way to connect formation to information, but this is drastically transforming in light of the diverse landscape of theological education. 
what you just did there is so helpful for me because I think I was coming into the conversation thinking about that tension in one way and you accepted that question and then went into the tension and undid it for me in a way that really opened it up in a new way. What I heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when I think about formation and information, I was thinking about that tension with some of my presuppositions that come from my location as a white cis-presenting male in a theological context. And what I'm hearing you saying is that a lot of the information that I was presented with in seminary was designed to reinforce a type of formation about my role in that conversation as the default character. Now, when I say it that way, have I heard what you're saying or, or would you say it in a different way? No, you're absolutely right. And and I'm glad that you're lifting this up real quick, because I think there is a way in which we need to sit with the tension, David. There is a sense in which the information, the, the kind of knowledge that is produced, that is revered, right, that I talk about in my book, that is foregrounded in some ways is out of step with how we need to think about formation today in an increasingly diverse world. But at the same time, I I think it is important, as you talked about, and you've rightly summed it up, that the information we have is still deeply connected to a kind of formation that is profoundly problematic, that is profoundly still linked to sort of colonial, racist, and even problematic gendered models. So you're absolutely right in how you summed it up. Now, when we talk about colonial, racist, and deeply gendered models, I'm hearing you talk about models that are overtly violent, overtly exclusionary. But some of what we're already digging into here is that the entire kind of inherited model of theological education is not necessarily committed to that overt kind of exclusion, that overt kind of violence, that overt kind of racism. But what I'm hearing you saying is that the curriculum itself can be a covert kind of exclusion, a covert kind of violence, a covert kind of racism. Now, am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying, or would you say it a different way? No, I think that you're right. Honestly, the notes of a native daughter, a good 80% of it, right, is dedicated to this kind of uh, covert, insidious, and subtle form, right? I talked about at the beginning of the book that how could it be in an increasingly, as ATS reports, an increasingly diverse landscape in theological education related to the student body and the faculty, how could it be that structural racism is even more operative in some ways, deeply operative, maybe I should say, in in many ways. Um, And here's a case in which you have, for example, many you could say African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and the like coming into theological education. But let's just take faculty, for example. But then that uh, reality right there does not match, for example, tenured numbers, right? We still are seeing the blackening and browning of adjunct faculty, right? In which even the conversation of tenure is mismatched with the numbers of African-American as well as other ethnic minoritized folks coming into those ranks. And we won't even talk about full professorship. The numbers are even smaller. So this is just one example. And I mean, you talk about how committees tenure faculty members, you know, so it's this insidious subtle where it said, well, they're not rigorous enough in their research or they're taking up a figure that is not considered a classical figure. And so when the reports come in, for example, on how important this scholar is to the tenure process, whether they deserve tenure, oftentimes it gets met with. Well, they're not a leading thinker because they're not writing in what is considered, you know, a critical or a dominant area of study that that's considered theological or ethical or whatever the case may be. So to your point, I think that you're right, that these subtle forms, it becomes increasingly important that we tend to and we talk truthfully about how structural racism is still covertly operating. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're talking today about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. Well, we've already begun to get into the the meat of kind of what you're dealing with in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter. One of the things that you mention throughout the book is that when we're talking about these schools of theological education, particularly the prominent ones, and especially the ones that are associated with Ivy League schools like your school, Princeton, these were designed initially for white men. 
that was the student that was expected to inhabit the halls. And what you've begun to describe here is that the students that are now coming to these seminaries are in increasingly students of color, the, the blackening and browning and differing that you've talked about. But that is still not percolating to the, the top in terms of the administration, in terms of the faculty. And one of the things that is going on there, I think, is an increasing frustration on the part of those students to reimagine what their theological educations might be. And I think for my listeners who may have an idea of what seminary is, but have not really been involved in these kind of conversations in the last five or 10 years, what are some of the frustrations that students are bringing to these institutions that are traditionally historically white as they are increasingly coming with experiences that are not reflected by that default of whiteness? Yeah. One of the things that I talk about, David, in the book, and I don't name it this way, so I'm naming it this way right now, is, you know, you sort of have, for example, historically, let's say liberationist theology, right? I mean, you think of James Cone, you think of Gutierrez, who talk about doing theology from below. Part of what I'm advocating in the book is now thinking about doing theological education from below. So, you know, your question of what are students' frustrations? How are they navigating this space, which is still profoundly racist? And one of the things that I hope that the reader takes away from the text is that students come oftentimes, number one, having questions and maybe even being angry at the denominational context that they come out of, right? So they're already coming with particular kinds of questions about the possibilities related to theological education from their own home context, as well as how they can make a difference as they learn at a theological institution. But then oftentimes, as you, we've already talked about, they're met, right, with skepticism, with questioning their, their own worth, whether they're able to do the kind of things that they need to do. Because, for example, faculty often are not culturally sensitive. This is one conversation that I talk about throughout my book in different ways, right? From the kind of thinkers that show up on the syllabus to how we think about the worship experience in chapel when the worship experience is focused on a particular kind of liturgy that tends to be grounded in white churches. I mean, I can sort of go on and on, David, about the various experiences that particularly Black students, I, I'll stick to Black students because that was a lot of my conversation in the book. But students of color come and they're met with really a model that does not take seriously their own cultural location and doesn't honor the musings and the questions of their heart. And so I think those are some of the frustrations, right, that students bring, that theological education needs to really listen and take seriously if it's going to be in the vanguard of transformation. There was another piece that came out in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, that helps to also highlight this tension, and that is both for faculty and for students, when they come into this space of conversation, if they're persons of color, they're oftentimes given a stark choice. You can be a womanist or you can study Schleiermacher. You can be a black liberation theologian or you can study Karl Barth. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that tension for my listeners, because they may not realize that that kind of differentiation, that kind of forced choice choice making, it, it speaks to exactly what you're saying, where students want a kind of hybridity. They want to be able to mix and match these traditions with liberationist ideas, and they're oftentimes precluded from doing it. Yeah, a, a great way to answer this is to sort of just mention my own journey as a Pentecostal, right? I mean, I uh, attend Yale Divinity School. I start my journey in 2002. And when I start, I come from a very conservative, I'll use this term, fundamentalist sort of background, at least my denominational context, believes in biblical inerrancy, biblical literalism. And so I come to the theological context, and it's actually Karl Barth that I meet, right, in talking about scripture and the word of God in very non-fundamentalist language that actually in the beginning really allows me to expand my mind beyond sort of the theological grammar I had up until that point in a very conservative environment of biblical literalism. But as I continue within the first year of being at the seminary at Yale, I encountered other voices such as womanist voices, African feminist theological voices and the like that really began to stir and transform my own theological perspective. I said all that to say this, that even in my journey, what I've experienced firsthand is 
the variety, I should say, of theological thinkers that really shaped and informed my own journey as a Pentecostal woman and as a theological ethicist. And so I think it's really important when students are coming in to not feel that they, and I talk about this in the book, David, to not feel like their only choice is to be an echo of the options that are already presented, right? The problem of the echo that I can only echo, I can only give back the binaries, right? Or the options that are already presented, but that in some ways I can think in creative ways and fashion new theological spaces, right? That take into account many different kinds of theological voices. And I think that For me, that is what's really important when we're talking about a transformation in the curricula of theological education and how we think more deeply, period, about discourses and identity within theological education. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Day. She's an associate professor of constructive theology and African-American religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's the author of a number of books, and today we're talking about her most recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. Well, in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, and also in this conversation, you've mentioned that you come from a background of Pentecostalism. And I'm wondering for listeners that are unfamiliar with that, if we could spend a few minutes lining out what that means. I think perhaps the place to start might be the Azusa Street Revival, because you mentioned this in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, as an example of the kind of bottom-up theology from below that is not often encountered in the founding of churches. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, just in some brief terms, what the Azusa Street Revival was about and what it meant for and how it informs what we now call Pentecostalism. Yeah. So, I mean, the Azusa Revival of 1906 was held in Los Angeles, California. And there's a lot of literature actually on the Azusa Revival already. I actually have another book probably within the next year that is coming out seeking to offer a fresh interpretation of the Azusa Street Revival through Stanford University Press. But I think for the listener, so to speak, that's just hearing for the first time about the Azusa Revival, essentially it was a revival that drew over a span of several years from 1906, probably all the way up to about 1915, thousands of people, not just from around the nation, but from around the world to witness three things, I would say. Although it was a revival that was dedicated to Pentecostalism, given to prayer and the workings of the spirit and things like that, the three things that really, I think, stuck out in how we might talk about the Azusa revival is number one, it was a multiracial congregation, but led by Black women domestics and itinerant Black preachers such as William Seymour, as well as other African-American workers. In other words, it was poor Black folks that led this revival. And that's particularly significant, right? Because it is an interracial congregation It bridges across class denominations where, for example, at the altar, you have African-American women that are leading wealthy white men in a conversion experience. You even have the the Los Angeles Times that reports on this. I think it's like hundreds of of different reports that are going on. The media was really interested in what was happening on, on Azusa Street. And they note that there's this white business tycoon that is being led right in a conversion experience by African American woman. 
And then also what was significant about the Azusa revival is how it supported women in the preaching and pastoring ministry. And that was particularly significant because as, uh, for example, womanist ethicist Cheryl Jilks talks about, you have in record numbers women coming out of Baptist and Methodist traditions that could not get ordained, that are flooding down to Azusa Street to be a part of this Azusa revival, a part of this movement, because they are seen as partners in ministry at all levels. And so you have this amazing revival that in some ways is going across racial, gender, and class boundaries and categories. And I want to know, not in this perfect way, right? There are a lot of things that happen in the first year of this movement's life, but rather imperfectly that the Azusa Street Revival is doing something that most of segregationist America could not do, right? So in some ways, it's talking back. It's, it's ways of being, it's, it's communal building, it's formation, as we've been talking about so far. It's in stark contrast to the segregationist character of this country. Now, it's progressive in practice. Would you also characterize it as being progressive in its theology, or was it conservative in its theology? Like how, when we're thinking about the doctrines that, that are behind these kind of very progressive social practices of women leading the worship or white tycoons submitting themselves to the leadership of African-American domestic women, so what is the theology behind this? How would you characterize it? Yeah, so I'd like to be careful here because when I think of progressivism in the way that we talk about it, I, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that in, in, in applying a term like that to a religious movement at the beginning of the 20th century could be anachronistic, right? In some ways, it could be sort of wrong to interpret this movement, a product of its own time through this category. But what I will say is that it was progressive, quote unquote, in its social practices. But I think in its theology, it also held some pretty radical ideas. So it just wasn't the case, for example, that women were accepted into the ministry as pastors and as other sorts of leaders because they were socially progressive. But it was sort of in the theology, right, itself, that women were seen as co-partners and co-equal in scripture, right? They appealed to scripture in terms of giving women that right. So it was sort of a theological move that was being made. Not only that, but I think about William Seymour, the pastor of the church. He writes, and this is in the Apostolic Newsletter that they published for three years, from 1906 to 1909, he talks about the ways in which his theology, and therefore the Azusa Street movement, should be grounded in a non-racist character. And that non-racist character is not just a social imperative, sort of an expression of social progressivism, but rather at the heart, Seymour talks about, at the heart of having the Holy Spirit, for example, he says that a man or woman who has the Holy Spirit and quote unquote speaks in tongues, it means nothing if he does not rid himself of the racial prejudice in his heart, right? So, so here you have Seymour that is talking theologically about what it means to have the Holy Spirit. And it's just not about certain sets of behaviors like speaking in tongues or coming to church or these sorts of things or declaring yourself to be a Christian. But for him, what's at stake is literally participating in dismantling the segregationist character of the United States, of white churches, of the communities of which they were a part. And and for me, That's radical. We think even today of white churches that refuse to have this conversation about what is necessary, turning to dismantling whiteness, what is necessary in order for the good news to truly be the good news. Now, when you quote Reverend Seymour saying that, what echoed in my mind was Paul saying, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm nothing. And what I'm hearing you communicate in Reverend Seymour's words is, even if you're speaking in tongues, but you still have racism in your heart, it's not the gospel. Am I hearing that connection right? That's right. And I think through the way he built community, I think one could surmise from how they entered community building is he would say that, and if one, so it is about the heart, but it's also about what one does practically with the systems that are present, right? Even though, again, Seymour is not speaking in the language of systems and structures, he makes it very clear that racist forms of community building, racist policies in some ways that have disenfranchised folks that, that sat within the community. And I, maybe I should say this. 
the Azusa Street Revival, it was a congregation that then morphed into this great movement. And it was made up of not only African-Americans, but of course, whites, but also immigrants, Armenians, Russians, African immigrants, of all these different immigrants. And for Seymour, it was also about in talking about the spirit, about if one is truly a Christian, how well society, especially Christian churches, are responding to the material realities of these folks, of the least of these. But he talks about this in his sermons in various ways. So, so I think you're right. It is for him about ridding the heart of racism. But for him, that has practical implications, literally, in how we go about building communities and addressing the material deprivations and realities of the least of these. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're talking about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. Well, we've been talking about Pentecostalism and the, the history of the Azusa Street Revival. And in my understanding, more kind of mainline Protestantism, which is represented by places like Princeton Theological Seminary, mainline Protestantism has tended to be very wary of Pentecostalism and to keep it at a distance. Now, is that a misunderstanding? Do I do, do you have a different understanding of that or is this correct? And what are we to make of mainline Protestantism distancing itself from this very spirit led outpouring of theology and worship? No, I think that you're right. <laughs> and Notes of a Native Daughter actually attempts to capture this wariness. And I think in part, mainline Protestantism, and let me be very clear, it's just not white Protestantism. As I write about, well, the book is not out yet, out yet but another book that I have coming out soon, that one of the reasons why white Protestantism, as well as middle-class Black churches, in the Methodist and Baptist traditions even, we're so wary, is because Pentecostalism is unpredictable, right? Chaotic in some ways, those outside might term it as. It is gloriously messy is another way of saying it, but I say messy not in a negative way, right? But in this way in which order, quote unquote order, doesn't quite capture it, right? That in some ways, this is a Pentecostalism, historically at least, even now, and I should say Pentecostalism's plural, there are many kinds of Pentecostalism, that in some ways it operates outside of the parameters and the boundaries of what is presumed to be order or the standard. In this case, white order. In this case, uh, white standards of spiritual as well as social propriety. So I think that you're right in asking this question that absolutely, yes, and it's for this reasons. And I think that's why, as I talk about in Notes of a Native Daughter, I wanted to allow the reader to enter into this world, my world, how this world thinks. For example, how this world thinks not only in terms of spirituality as an exercise of the intellect, but as the body being central in mediating what we know about God and what God knows about us, right? And how we move about in the world spiritually in waiting uh, God's resurrecting power as we move into the world to, to transform. So I think that you're absolutely right in what you're saying. And this is why it was so important for me to foreground Pentecostalism, particularly my experience, my, my journey, my story, as a way to show that there are important resources that theological education and other Christian communities can mine from these traditions. You're noting the plurality of Pentecostalism and, and, and saying that it's really Pentecostalisms. I think that speaks to something that really struck me in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, and that is when a person is coming into these spaces, whether as a student or as an educator, they are encountering a kind of gatekeeping. And it's not just the gatekeeping of whiteness and the kind of default whiteness that we've talked about, but also there's a kind of maleness that is gatekeeping as well. There is a kind of socioeconomic gatekeeping, a, an, a, an assumption that a person is going to come from a certain class background or have a certain amount of leisure and access to do these kinds of studies. And that was very starkly communicated at a couple of points, particularly for me in your book, when you were talking about your experience 
dealing with board members in a program that you were running at, at Bright Divinity School around black church studies. And when you were trying to bring voices that were coming from the queer community, for example, or specifically womanist voices into the conversation, some board members were telling you, we need to focus really on just one specific issue of discrimination and not get into all this other more complicated stuff. Now, as I'm saying this, these are my words, not yours. So I'm wondering, first of all, would you talk about that portion of your book in a different way than I've characterized it? Or would you elaborate a little bit on what that circumstance was like for you? Yeah, I mean, this is it's such an, an important, I think, moment in my book, because the book is about notes of a native daughter. It is seeking uh, to talk about the Black experiences, but to focus specifically on Black women and Black queer folks whose voices need to be amplified even more. And I think one of the reasons why I included that experience in my book is because, you know, the question becomes, if white dominant theological education is so profoundly racist, is a site of harm, although I talk about it as a site of hope as well for African-Americans, because we've shaped that context in part. But if it is a site of harm, Why don't African-Americans, Black faculty, Black students just go to Black institutions, right, that focus on theological education? Why not just do that? And so what I tried to do in the book, at least, is to show that these spaces as well, right? In my case, it was a Black church studies program, right? But even in HBCU settings that have seminaries and divinity schools, that these spaces even have problems of Black heteropatriarchy, right? That in many ways disadvantage Black women and Black queer folks. And and that was important for me to foreground and bring up because in some ways, you're right, there is this historic sort of experience of structural racism, but oftentimes that blinds not just white context, but Black theological context to why intersectionality needs to be heard, it needs to be embraced, and it needs to really be integrated, not only to our theological perspectives, but but structurally, institutionally, and to how we do theological education. So how you described it, you heard me absolutely right. And at Bright Divinity School, that was such a hard situation, because on the one hand, I want to be a major advocate as a faculty member, the director of the program, of people in my community, of bridging the community where I was in Fort Worth to what we were doing academically. I wanted to be a part of that. But at the same time, I felt like I needed to preserve my integrity. And that was the integrity of not allowing a program to dismiss the experiences or outright disenfranchise Black women, of which I am, of course, a Black woman, and Black queer folks. And so this is, I think, a really important conversation for theological education, both white context, definitely, as well as Black context. You used a term a moment ago, and I want to make sure that it's a clear term for my listeners. You talked about intersectionality. Could you take a moment and just define for us what that term means for you? Sure. Well, it was a term that was coined and developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, and it's kind of a legal, a theorist and scholar and a Black feminist, and it's taken on a life of its own. But essentially, intersectionality is this idea that many folks come to the table with multiple intersecting forms of identity, right? So as an example, I, as, a, as an African-American woman, I sit inside of the, the Black community, right? And so in talking about my experiences, as well as what is needed for me to thrive, I need more than a race-based analysis or a race-based solution, right? Because in some ways, my gender, my class, my sexuality, all these different things need to be taken into account because they constitute my identity. They constitute who I am. And so intersectionality really tries to make sure that we're taking into account the idea that no one community is a monolith, right? And therefore, how we think about solutions cannot simply be just race-based or just gender-based, right? Or just class-based. That in some ways, we have to think in these multi-dimensional, intersecting ways about identity And that's important to the Theological Academy, right? What we've been talking about so far all along and what I talk about in the book is that in order for the Theological Academy to really, for the Theological Academy to know what to do, 
I mean, we're not just talking about, well, we write out this curriculum or we have this program and then we get feedback from the students. What I'm arguing in the book, no, actually we need to listen to those with intersectional identities. We need to listen to those who feel they're not being heard in order to know what to do, right? <laughs> to even begin having the conversation. And intersectionality in, enables us to do that. You know, it strikes me as I'm hearing you describe this, that if we look at the Gospels, we've got an example of this. When we look at Mark, I believe it's chapter five, the man who is possessed not by one demon, but by a legion of demons. That's not just one type of oppression, but it's intersectional oppression that is holding him down and keeping him apart from society. So we can look at that as a model for what you're saying as well. Now, when I make that connection, uh, that was a leap. Did I do justice to what you're talking about? Or would you say that in a different way? No, I think this great way of saying it. And I mean, to actually note the scripture that you're mentioning is, I think that's a very important interpretation, actually. Um, the way you're interpreting the man with the legion of demons, the many different oppressions, I think is eloquently talked about in Willie Jennings' Acts commentary. But I think that you're right in offering scriptural resources, right, for how we might think about the many different oppressions that face ethnic minoritized folks like Black folks, right? In particular, like Black women and Black queer people, that we need to be aware of these multiple oppressions, these multiple forces at a structural level that in some ways and at times disallows precisely these folks from flourishing and thriving. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're talking today about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll hear close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's the author of several books, including Unfinished Business, Black Women, the Black Church, and the Struggle to Thrive in America, and Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism, Womanist and Black Feminist Perspectives. We're talking today about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. In your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, you discuss the fact that oftentimes when persons of color, queer persons, people who have contextual identities, and I'm, I'm using that word intentionally, they come into this space of theological education and they are told, well, you need to learn how to speak in the discourse, which means to leave your context behind as if all these white male theologians somehow wrote contextless with no actual historicity or materiality to what they're doing. You say at the outset of your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, I am choosing to write this book from a very centered place in my experience, your experience, from a place that is less formal and is more notational. And I, I want to ask you to talk to me and my listeners about what it was like to make that choice in terms of the structure of the book, what you wrestled with, what you think you gained, and what you think that choice cost you in constructing the book this way. Yeah, this is a wonderful question. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, part of 
academic training is writing in ways that are considered rigorous, right? And so rigorous meaning that one writes towards the argument, right, philosophically. And a part of writing rigorously towards the argument is writing with evidence in mind. And in this case, evidence, as I talk about in, in, in Notes of a Native Daughter, evidence is about that which is impartial. You know, the data, you hold it up, you are an impartial sort of a uh, 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 writer, you're showing the evidence that leads to an outcome. And so part of the struggle for me was that I am attempting in some ways to challenge that model, right? To challenge that model because number one, Black folks and this is just not in theological education, but in the academy, our experiences and our stories oftentimes are discounted. They're oftentimes seen as not legitimate. They're not seen as, in some ways, even truthful because our stories about racism lacks evidence. And one example is in ATS, it is interesting that within ATS, you know, racism at an institutional level, let's say in faculty a tenure and promotion and things like that. It has not been documented, right? So whenever African-Americans talk about the profound racial disparities in tenure and promotion, they're often met with the question of where's the evidence? Well, what happens when you have a large, the largest body that oversees accreditation that really hasn't done a significant systematic study in this area? So I'm saying all that to say that I bring up a familiar mode of speech testifying that comes out of my tradition, um, but it's also a way of knowing. Testifying is not about appealing per se to the evidence that everyone will see as impartial data, right? But testifying is about telling your story anyhow, so to speak, what we would say within my Black church tradition. And that is Telling your story regardless, telling the story of racism, telling the story of what you've experienced, in my case, within theological education, as a way to speak the truth, as a way to tell the truth about a particular institution as a site of harm and hope, but as a way to create a new moment, right, of what we can know together as an institution. So in, in many ways, I struggled with it not being seen as rigorous, right? That's really the truth. It's a profound act of vulnerability on my part to do this. But at the same time, I struggled in another sense, and this is a positive struggle, David. I struggled in another sense with asking, how does testifying allow for new stories new forms of knowledge on how we need to be different, how we need to revolutionize theological education. How does testifying allow all of this to emerge, all of this to come to the fore in ways, in new ways, than what we have already in terms of talking about the present and the future of theological education? So there's one way in which in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, this really sprang forward for me, the, the kind of tensions that you're talking about. You use some language throughout the book, and you've talked about intellectual rigor. You also talk about legitimacy, but then you use a term that I hadn't encountered before, but when I read it in your book, it just it blew my mind, legibility. There's a sense in which the academy is saying, if you come to us with your vulnerable experiences, we cannot even read you. You are not legible to us. I'd love to hear more about that term because it's the first time that I've encountered it in your book, Notes of a Native Daughter. I want to know more about where you got this term and how you're thinking about this term of legibility. Yeah, so I can say, you know, definitely as a faculty member, but I think students, of course, feel this and experience this all the time. I think at a basic level, culturally, students come into the Theological Academy within to their respective divinity schools and seminaries. And for example, as they are in the classroom and as they are, you know, talking about their experience, let's say in relationship to a particular reading, often, and this is something that many Black students remark on, oftentimes their comments are, are met with blank stares, maybe even confused stares by uh, a number of their white student colleagues, as well as their white professors. And I think this is one sort of broad example of how, you know, what they have to say in relationship to theology or their own theological perspectives literally come across as incoherent 
I, I still think we need to have an ongoing conversation about how we theologize is so deeply related to our our culture, right? I mean, that in some ways, theology, it does emerge out of our cultural context. And the grammar that we come to the table with is deeply informed by that cultural context. So, so that's what I mean there by this sense of legibility, this sense of incoherence that they're not just misunderstood, but they're seen as their comments, their perspectives, as it doesn't cohere with what is what's being talked about. But I think among faculty, and that's really where I was having the conversation about legibility and scholarship uh, in those second and third chapters of my book, is this idea that many Black scholars, for example, write about different theological themes, and they're appealing to certain norms, right, or certain values or certain canonical texts they would think as being canonical texts. For example, womanist scholars like Katie Cannon, she appeals to Zora Neale Hurston. And I would argue that she appeals to Zora Neale Hurston in a kind of canonical way, right, as a way of shaping her theological and ethical perspective. And I know within her time coming through the ranks, I say even now that when it comes to, say, discussing certain concept of ethics or even during the tenure and promotion moment of, say, a womanist scholar, they're often met with the comment of illegibility, right? This legibleness that in some ways what they're doing is not legible because it doesn't coherently relate to the canon. And I presume that's maybe to major figures, right? Like Aquinas or Niebuhr or Bart or Tillich, or, you know, the list can go on. So when I speak of legibility, I'm talking about a certain cultural experience that is seen as incoherent when African-Americans put that, those experiences into words within the dominant white culture of theological education, but also legibility in the sense of what determines the institutional reward system in terms of tenure and promotion. And oftentimes Black faculty members are blocked because of the argument of them not being legible. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're talking about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. We've begun to talk about this, but I want to linger on this idea of vulnerability because both in your answers just now, but also in basically the back half of your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, you really foreground this idea of vulnerability as being a different kind of power in this space of theological education. And I'd love to linger there with you and with my listeners. Talk to us about what vulnerability can open up that other types of approaches in theological discourse cannot. Yeah. A lot of my conversations surrounding vulnerability, particularly in the fourth chapter, if you recall, where I talk about becoming undone by each other, you know, for me is to note that for me, vulnerability is deeply connected first to white institutional spaces and in particular white faculty, white administrators being willing to divest themselves of this idea that the conversation uh, about racial justice, the conversation about belonging among ethnic minoritized folks like, like African-Americans, these conversations cannot happen on their terms. They cannot happen on white terms, essentially. But that part of this willingness to be vulnerable, to tell the truth to oneself, which is what in some ways I'm calling white institutions and white folks within these institutions to do, means that in being vulnerable, the institution as well as individuals in that institution must be willing to open themselves up to a moment of conversation and institutional transformation that does not demand in some ways that what needs to be done must happen on their terms, on the terms of whiteness, right? And I think only then can we have a conversation. And this is why, you know, I reserve this conversation of becoming undone, of radical vulnerability among different folks across racial categories at the very end of the book. Because for me, vulnerability can be violent <laughs> if there are not certain structural things that are in place, right? If institutions 
And white folks are not willing to begin the process of doing certain things, right? So that was, this is very important for me to know that when that has transpired, there then I think is a, a very, uh, and I, I talk about this as a hope and a prayer, not as a didactic, we must do this, but as a hope and a prayer that in and through those moments opening up, I talk about some of these moments opening up in the slavery audit that Princeton Theological Seminary did a couple of years ago, that then perhaps there will be another moment in which, say, a Black student is not so deeply fearful of the violence that he or she experiences at the hands of the white professor that they are willing to come into uh, a relationship in some ways with said white professor in order to go on a journey. You know, And I talk about this in the book, whether we're talking about African-Americans or Latinx folks or Asian Americans. But but I think that this question of vulnerability of becoming undone is critically important because without it, we are lost. But vulnerability has to happen at both structural levels as well as interpersonal levels. That's so helpful because on the one hand, your choice to write Notes of a Native Daughter in this kind of testimonial way is an act of vulnerability. You are putting yourself into the story in a way that makes you vulnerable to some of the critiques we've talked about. But what I'm hearing you saying is, and and you talk about this as some examples from that Princeton audit of their history of, of slavery, when white professors and white administrators are willing to be vulnerable and to surrender some of the assumed power that they have in those situations, there's response from the part of persons of color and a a willingness to approach in a way that was not there before. Now, I'm reading this with all of my biases. I'm reading this with all of my own history. So I want to make sure that I'm not overly romanticizing that moment. So if I am, please correct me. But I really do hear there's hope in what you're saying. Am I right to read hope there? No, absolutely. I And again, I talk about this as a form of a prayer, right? It's a kind of impossible possibility, <laughs> what I'm talking about. As a hope, absolutely, how you've described it is, is that I sort of write in that fourth chapter about this possibility of becoming undone as a hope. But I want to say this, because when I began writing this book, we were not in the pandemic. When I finished this book, we were in the middle of the pandemic, smack dab in the middle. And what I hope people are able, readers are able to pick up from the text is that in chapter four, I talk about this radical act of vulnerability in the way that you have described it and I've described it in chapter four. But if you notice in my postscript, in the last three pages of the book, I return to this tension of native daughters and sons in theological education and within the broader country still not being heard. And in some ways, in the way that I talk about the enduring problems, right, of Black folks in theological education, what you get, I think what the reader gets at the very end of the book after reading the postscript is this big open question, right, that that I am talking about hope, but then it returns to, but this site is both Theological education is both a site of hope and harm, and it leaves it as an open question on whether theological education will listen, whether theological education actually has the resources to be a site of hope, right? So so I think it is important in some ways first to agree and say that I do talk about becoming undone and vulnerability in a way that is radically hopeful. But by the time you get to the postscript and the last three or four pages of the book, I sort of return the reader to the open question that I talk about in the introduction. And that is, will theological education actually listen to its native daughters and sons so that this institution, theological education in particular, can be experienced? as a context of hope for these folks. I'm really struck by what you just said. And I'm also aware that right before that postscript, you conclude the book by saying, listen, a lot of people are going to push me to want to flesh out what all of this change will look like. And you resist doing that. But I, I want to present you with sort of a, a piece that I'm seeing, and I'm wondering what you think about it. So in the postscript, you talk about the kind of crisis that we're in right now that has been presented to us by the complete 
dissolution of normal life under the pandemic. You've also at several points in this conversation used the word revolution. And forgive me, but I'm thinking of Karl Barth. And Karl Barth, the theologian from Germany who wrote against Hitler, used this tension between crisis and revolution, radical change, to talk about moments where theology can actually progress. And so we're in a moment where nothing that was normal is lingering with us right now. And what I'm hearing you saying is the revolutionary, the radical possibility here is that we, and by we, I mean me, and by me, I mean the white power structure, needs to drop its its desire to hold on to the old normal, become vulnerable, and begin to listen to the voices of those who have been pushed to the margins again and again, and to radically engage with the truth that they're telling us, the truth that comes from, as you mentioned at one point in your book, what it's like to be on the ground with the guns pointed in your faces, to really listen to that voice. And so I'm 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 wondering then, when you use this word revolution, I'm hearing you meaning it, that this is truly revolution. This is truly revolutionary. This is throwing over the tables in the temple. Am I right to hear it that strongly? Or are you, are you wanting to pull back a little bit and say, well, some of the old will remain or will all of the old have to be cast away? You know, so when I was writing this book, there was a way in which, and I mean, this, and, and actually I sort of give myself away in that first sentence of the fourth chapter, when I say, how should we think about deep renovations in theological education? So this is pre-pandemic, okay? And so pre-pandemic, I was thinking of, even though I think that down to the core of theological edu- education, I've always thought this, that there needs to be a radical transformation I was still thinking in the language of renovation. I I really was. And I can honestly say that post-pandemic, for a variety of reasons, in the pandemic and post-pandemic, I really began to think, and and this is just not related to theological education, even my political positioning is beginning to shift in some ways. I began to think in the language of revolution more and more. And here I want to invoke the late theologian James Cone. And I write about James Cone, right, in, in Notes of a Native Daughter in which essentially James Conamy, he is thoroughly unimpressed. He is not interested, right, in in appealing to be, uh, in in trying to be rigorous in that sense of the white power structure. He's very clear at the time of his writing, from the time he writes his first text until his death, that theology, the way we understand the Christian faith, in order to truly, for it to truly be a liberating gospel, there has to be a complete revolution and how we understand the meaning, right, of Christian faith itself. And for Cone, that went all the way down to deep revolutionizing of how we interpret Jesus, how we interpret the scripture, right? How we interpret almost every aspect of theology and the Christian faith. And I think I'm at a stage right now in theological education where paradigmatically, I would affirm Cone's insight. That when I look at theological education from curriculum to institutionally, how it goes about the decision-making process, even to the top tier level of leadership, that is the administrative level, there, there really can't be renovations here. And I know in saying this, this potentially is not appealing to the dean or the president or others that are listening to me right now, but actually involves deep revolution, right? And this is my point uh, that I actually, I think I do capture in the fourth chapter is that in talking about this kind of deep revolution, it means a profound risk-taking on the part of white folks that are a part of the white power structure. And part of this risk-taking is making a decision to have this conversation and to implement policies, but to do this not on the terms of the white power structure that they benefit from. But on the terms, really listening, on the terms of those that are deeply disenfranchised and affected. Well, Professor Carrie Day, your book, Notes of a Native Daughter, it was such a powerful read for me. And it came 
at exactly the right time. My colleagues and I in the, the place where I teach, we've been wrestling with how to think about the formation of our students, how to think about anti-racism issues. And I want to share your book with my colleagues because I think that you offer a vision and a way of critiquing the problems that are there structurally for us that's I couldn't put words to, but now I've begun to find words for thanks to your work. So thank you so much for taking the time to write this book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, David. It's been a joy being on your program and being able to talk about this book. We've been speaking today with Dr. Carrie Day. She's Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's also the author of Unfinished Business, Black Women, the Black Church, and the Struggle to Thrive in America, and Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism, Womanist and Black Feminist Perspectives. We've been talking about her recent book, Notes of a Native Daughter, Testifying in Theological Education. It will be released by Erdman's Press in late July. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.